One more time for me, good morning. If you have a Bible with you, hope you do, or it's on your device, we're not offended by that. If you just want to Google it, um, it's Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. I'm just going to read a few verses for us, verses 13 through 16. We'll pray and we'll dive in here. So however you get to the Word of God today, please do. It's Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read to us verses 13 through 16. In Mark chapter 10, the Word of God says this, And they, the the people of that land, were bringing children to him, Jesus, that he might touch the children. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to his disciples, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And Jesus took the children in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. For the believer, time around the word is the pinnacle of each day. And then on the Lord's day with the Lord's people, it's the pinnacle of the week. This is the most powerful time that we can have this week. And while the deliverer is clearly flawed, the word is perfect. So Lord, deliver your word through the vehicle and then do things in people's hearts. That through this word today, our minds would be renewed. That we would think differently than the world around us. That we would think differently about these these issues of children and parenting, but something deeper here as well, that by the end we think very differently about God, our Father, that we look at Jesus and the glory that he brings in this message. And be with our time around the word. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if I could get you to use your imagination with me, that instead of being a believer in 21st century upstate of South Carolina, gathered with other believers on the Lord's Day, I wonder if I can get you to use your imagination and imagine yourself instead 2,000 years ago. You're in one of those cities you might know from the Bible. You're in Ephesus, Thessalonica, Philippi. And every Sunday, you do gather with probably about this many people, a few dozen people. And you worship the Lord together. You've only even heard the story of Jesus maybe fairly recently. He's ascended into heaven only a few years ago. And you gathering together with people who are now following Jesus. You hear a rumor that there's this new scroll going around. That this guy got, this guy Mark, he, he collected stories from Peter and he was around for some of it. And he's got some stories of Jesus and you find out your church is about to get this copy of the Gospel of Mark and you get together. What would have happened for all those churches is someone would have gotten up or maybe they, take, they took turns and they would have read the entire thing at the same time. They would have taken the 30 minutes and they would have read the whole story. That gives them an advantage because they have some things in their recent memory that you don't. What they know uh, from chapter 1, they would have heard 20 minutes ago. What you know from chapter 1, you heard from me almost two years ago. So I suspect you don't remember all of it, and that's okay. But to get to the bottom, the, the fullness of this passage, these few verses, we need to give you the advantage they had. And read it as if you have been listening to it for 20 minutes straight. So let me remind you, what Mark has been doing in telling the story of Jesus is he's been revealing his authority. He's been saying, hey, guys, watch this Jesus. He has power over the supernatural. He casts out demons. He has power over the natural. He calms winds and waves. 
He has power over the, the law and the Pharisees and the systems because he, he just runs circles around them in his teaching. He has power over everything. And in showing you and revealing his power, he's been demanding of you, the reader, for 20 minutes. Who do you think this is? Who, who are you, what are you going to do with this Jesus? And then we reach a pinnacle up on the Mount of Transfiguration where instead of asking you, who do you think this Jesus is who has all this power, he just answers it. Peter just says out loud, you're the Christ. You're the chosen one of God. You are God in the flesh. And so now that we have that answer, the second half of the book is asking you, what are you going to do about it? He is king. He is Messiah. How are you going to respond to that? And through the second half of the book, we're starting to see, they're starting to see the picture of what it means to follow Jesus, to be in his kingdom. Remember, if you would have been reading this straight through, 20 minutes ago you would have heard the story that when he came on the scene that he was bringing the kingdom of God. So now we're asking the question, Mark is actually demanding of us an answer. Do you want to be in this kingdom? Are you going to be a subject to this king or will you rebel against this king? What does it look like to be in his kingdom? If you think about the stories leading up to this one, here's what we found. That we had the disciples grappling with that question. They asked among themselves, who do you think of us as the greatest? And Jesus corrects and says, to be in my kingdom, it's actually the servant who is the greatest. He who would serve others, serve the lowly. That's how you're great in my kingdom. The story after that, the disciples come to Jesus, actually John does, and say, hey Jesus, there were these people and they were casting out demons and healing the sick in your name and we told them to stop because they're not part of our group. And Jesus says, don't tell them to stop. The kingdom's not so small that it just serves your, your desire to be popular, to have rank and renown and power. The kingdom is much more broad than that. Actually, everybody in my name, that's who can be in the kingdom. And it was very soon after that, Jesus gets that very uncomfortable language where he says, oh, to be in my kingdom, you're going to take your sin really seriously. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So as we've been going through these stories leading up to this one, we've been learning, what's it look like to be in the kingdom? Well, apparently it looks like to serve, and it looks like not trying to exclude people just so that we can have more power and have our name be bigger. And it looks like taking our sin seriously. And all that's happening here is Mark is giving us one more mark. One, one more quality of what it's like to be in the kingdom of God. So with that, let's take a look. Let's take a look at what it's like to be in the kingdom and how to receive it. Verse 13. And they, the people of that area, were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. We'll stop there for a second. The they here is parents. The noun is in the masculine tense, meaning this. It wasn't just moms. It was families. Moms and dads coming to Jesus to have their kids blessed. And that makes total, I think, total sense to us. I want to develop that for you. That, of course, moms and dads, when they hear about this powerful figure who's making an incredible impact everywhere he goes, they would want their children to be blessed by him. I need to create for you, create for you though, the urgency of it. I did some work for you on this to illustrate in this country, 120 years ago, in the year 1900, the infant mortality rate was 15%, meaning out of, 100, out of every 100 babies born, 15 of them would die before they turned five. We, of course, don't have the numbers from antiquity, the time that Jesus was alive, but we have some theories and some smart folks have put together a, an estimate that they think it might have been 40%. That 40% of every child that was born would not live to five. And so, of course, these parents who love their kids, they want their kids, they have a desire to see their kids grow up. They hear Jesus is in town. 
I'm afraid for my child. I want to take him to Jesus. I want to get him blessed by Jesus. And so while we can, we can certainly surmise, we can understand why they want their kids to go to Jesus, at the same time, they're being quite presumptuous. In that culture where kids were not highly valued, for them to think for a second this very powerful, very popular person would want to see their kids, they're actually being quite forward. They're outside of their cultural norm to bring their kids to a powerful, popular person. So while we understand what they're trying to do, it doesn't, it doesn't make cultural sense. It's a little bit out of the, the, the typical hierarchy of the social strata. I mean, think about kids for a second. They offer you nothing. They actually take a lot from you at the very beginning. Some of you might say amen to that. Yeah, they're taking a lot from you. If you had a problem today, you wouldn't go to your kid with it. If you lost a job, you wouldn't go to your kid and say, you know anybody? Could you help me out? Our kids offer us actually very little, especially at the, at the beginning. And so in that era, kids truly were thought of as a mouth to feed, and I cannot wait till you are old enough to contribute, because right now you are just taking a lot from us. And so for these parents, they're being quite presumptuous. So for me, I, I, I know the, where we're headed. Ever since the Mount of Transfiguration, every story we've learned is while Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. Every story you've heard this far, he's going to the cross. And so even I, reading it, go, parents, if you had any idea where he was headed, you wouldn't stop him to bless your kids. And so I understand the disciples. I understand the crowd control they're trying to do because, no, we're not, we're not spending time on children. we got a mission. We're, they think we're headed to Jerusalem to set up our kingdom. Jesus knows he's, setting, he's going to Jerusalem to set up a very different kingdom, a cosmic kingdom. And you didn't want us to stop and deal with children? So the disciples stopped them, but let's see what Jesus does with that. But when Jesus saw that the disciples were stopping the children from coming to him, Jesus was indignant. And he said to the disciples, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. That language of Jesus being indignant, that's supposed to be a word that sort of surprises you. Jesus is angry at what he's seeing. I think we can very faithfully theorize that he's angry because the disciples continue to not learn a lesson they should have learned a long time ago. You go back to chapter 8, and Jesus prophesies that he's going to be taken to Jerusalem, he's going to be taken by authorities and killed, and Peter said, no, you won't. And Jesus rebukes him and says, your mind is on such worldly things. Don't you know that we're doing something bigger? It reminds me of that time where they rebuked those other people casting out demons in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, don't, don't stop them. This kingdom's not about you. It's not about you having a rank or some kind of title in it. It's, it's bigger. Why, why are you seeing this? It happens again just a couple chapters, a couple stories later. Some blind men are calling out to be healed. And the disciples try to stop the blind men because they don't want to distract from them going to set up their kingdom. I think he's indignant because he, it seems like they don't get the point. That this kingdom is apparently for the lowly. This kingdom is for the weak. This kingdom is for the poor and the sick and the blind. Why do you keep turning away these people? The disciples have a problem here. They want to keep the club small and they want to keep the undesirables away. And Jesus is indignant about that. And so he says, no, let them let come. But as is typical with Jesus... He doesn't stop there. He always takes it one step further and makes us a little uncomfortable. He doesn't stop with, don't hinder them. Because if he stops there, he says, don't hinder them, let them come. 
this is just such a sweet story. It's just Jesus, Jesus loves kids, and so should you. Actually, a very common sermon on this text, as I have studied, is just that. Jesus loves kids, so should you. Let's all go home. But he does something a little further. This is a text that's not primarily, it's about kids. It's not primarily about how we think about children. Jesus takes this interaction with his disciples and he turns it into a lesson, even saying there's something very odd. Hey, don't keep them from coming to me. Why? For such, such as these children, it's to them that the kingdom of God belongs to. What does that mean? What do you mean the kingdom of God belongs to people like children, childlike people, not childish people, but childlike people? What's that mean? Verse 15, Jesus challenges us with further in that truth. Verse 15, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter the kingdom of God. That is a strong enough statement for us not to just read over it and move on to the next verse. It is a strong enough statement for us to sit in it and dwell on it. I would imagine it would be universal if I asked you in this room, do you want to receive the kingdom of God? Everyone would say yes. All right, well, we have some instructions here. Apparently to receive the kingdom of God, you do it like a child does. Let's think through that. What is Jesus saying here? Just think about what children are like. They're small. They're weak. They're helpless. They're lowly thought of. They can do nothing for themselves. When you think about the mammals on this planet... Our newborns are some of the most helpless for so long. There's a lot of mammals on this planet. They have a baby. That thing's walking in like a day or two. They're taking care of themselves. There's an argument that some of your teenagers can't take care of themselves right now. They're 14, 15 years in, and you're still having to take care of them. When you think about kids, they're lowly thought of. They can't do anything for themselves. Some folks seem to come to this passage and think, Jesus is saying, "Come come to the kingdom like children because they're so innocent a lot of you with children would say no they're not they reveal themselves not to be innocent really quickly (laughs) he's not saying come to the come to the kingdom in the innocence of children he is saying come to the kingdom in the helplessness of children when you consider how helpless they are it doesn't surprise me that jesus actually does love kids jesus has has made clear in this ministry he loves those who are lowly He loves the sinner, the sick, the blind, the destitute, who are not doing well for themselves. It is totally totally on brand. It's in pattern that Jesus would love kids. So that's the statement he's making. Come to the kingdom like a child, offering nothing. And then think about our instinct. Think about my instinct. Our instinct is not to receive the kingdom. Our, my instinct is to achieve the kingdom. A lot of us grew up in some kind of moralism where we earn approval. Where I want to go to the kingdom of heaven. This is an Alistair Begg illustration. Where I charge the kingdom of heaven and say, guys, you should check my resume out. You won't believe all the things I didn't do that all those other people did. You won't believe the time I spent in church doing ministry. Check this out. I'm charging the kingdom of heavens with my resume as if they're going to say, you are very impressive. Come on in. That's not our story. Our story is not us charging the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven charging into our world. 
That's why this is almost, it's so powerful because Jesus is the one that said it. Not that we would charge heaven, but he came down to us, charging into our sin and death to conquer it. We tend to think we'll enter the kingdom on our own merits, by our behavior, our righteousness. And Jesus is calling you away in this lesson. He's calling you away from that thinking. In fact, that thinking that you will earn it will have you not receive the kingdom. You will miss the kingdom if you come at it with your own effort, with your own righteousness. Instead, we come as children. As Jesus came and charged down into our world to flip our script. Not that we would achieve the kingdom of God through our own trying and coming up woefully short. But instead, Jesus coming down to us like we're children with the kingdom as a, as a gift. So we have the interaction. Jesus saying, hey, hey, don't, don't stop them. Come, come on, let, let, let them by. And then a, an interaction that leads to a lesson. Hey, and you're going to want to monitor, to think about these kids, because to receive the kingdom, you're going to want to be like them, coming in your helplessness just to receive a blessing from Jesus. And so you have the interaction and the lesson, and then he applies it in verse 16. And Jesus took the children in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Admittedly, it's a very sweet scene. A lot of us grew up on flannel graph that had very cute pictures of this. A lot of us grew up on coloring books and things in Sunday school that just had this Jesus with children all around them. And it's sweet. He is showing the disciples, he's showing you the lesson. See? These kids don't offer anything to me. But I'm just welcoming them in. They do nothing for me. They're not going to build the kingdom with kids. I'm just going to bless them anyway. Again, when we know the full picture, he is just days away, weeks away, from starting the Passion Week. As he's headed to this cross, he just stops to bless the kids. Mark Dever painted an incredible picture as I was going through this. I read some Mark Dever on this scene about what it might have been like to be four, five, six years old and getting to sit on Jesus' lap and how... If kids wanted to be around Jesus, he must have been super fun. And he was very inviting and kind of clever. And that's a very fun thing to imagine. I even encourage it. I encourage your sanctified imagination to imagine how Jesus would have been with kids. It got me thinking about something else, though. That language of kids being brought, meaning they weren't coming on their own. I suspect a lot of these kids were so young, they had no memory of this. They had no memory of ever sitting in Jesus' lap. They were too young. I just imagine these kids in this Galilean hillside at, at, at five, six years old, like maybe five years after this happened, they were held by Jesus as a newborn or something. And one of them coming in one day, they were out there playing with their, their friends and they come in and say, hey, mom, dad, my friend just told me that like five or six years ago, Jesus, the one that we're following now, that went to the cross, that died and resurrected, the one that we're following now as our Messiah, they told me he came to our town and that like he held some kids did Jesus hold me? And I, I could see a parent saying, yeah, we, uh, we brought him out. We brought, you, we brought you out. We wanted you to be blessed by Jesus. And I imagine that kid saying, was it, did I like do something great? Did I have some kind of birthday? Did I get, make some straight A's on something? Like, why, why did he hold me? Just because he's good? Wait, like you didn't do anything special? Like to get his attention? The God of the universe made flesh? You didn't do anything? No. Just brought you. And just because he's good, he just took you up in his arms. 
believer, can I speak to your heart today that that is your relationship to your God? You didn't do anything. He's just good. If you're in the kingdom today and you're following Jesus today, it's just because He's good. And He called you in and you responded to the beautiful call to just come in and be loved by the Father. So, that's the text. There's a lot of good there. But what can we learn with it? Well, there's three, at least three things. What can we learn from this text I want to give you? We can think about how we think about children, how we think about us and the kingdom of God, and how we think about Jesus. As we get set for that, if you have your Bible with you, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Coming up in a couple weeks, I'll be preaching next week, but then Pastor Doug starting a Ephesians series that I cannot wait for. I suspect he will start in chapter 1, but we're going to be in chapter 6 to think about how this passage, how the Bible might have us think differently about children. It's a good call here to ask ourselves, the, this, here's some scripture that thinks about parenting and maybe even being a child. Kids, I even need you to listen because this, some of this is for you directly, kids. We can know the, the world thinks about child raising and being a child and being the, the, the child of adult, like being an adult kid of, of older parents. There's a lot of things the world thinks about kids. This is a good opportunity for us to say, do I think biblically about these things? Or have I been affected by a culture, a blog, a video that makes me think about all of these issues of parenting and children differently? So we get the opportunity now, this challenges us, to wonder, am I thinking biblically about kids? So here we go. Kids, listen to me real quick. If you're, if you're younger, stick with me. Ephesians 6, chapter 1, Paul writes this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. That one was for children. Here's one for everybody in the room. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So one, the first one was for children. second one's for all of us. This last one, it says fathers, but it's parents. Parents, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's see if the Bible can challenge us in how we think about either being a child or how we think about children. Kids, listen to me. That first part. Obey your parents. Actually, I know all the parents in here, so I don't even need to give the caveat that sometimes your parents are going to tell you to do something unbiblical. Your parents are solid. We know your parents. Obey them. And you wonder, hey, I'm like 17 or 18. Does that still count? Sure does. Until you are out on your own, you are under the authority of your father and mother, obey your parents. Listen to me on that. That gets harder as you get older. Maybe you're in here, you're 10, 11, 12 years old. Listen to me. Maybe right now, there's some years coming very soon where you're going to think, my parents don't know anything. They don't know anything about this world. They don't know anything about the internet and my TikTok app and you're going to think, my parents, they're not clever enough to know the world I'm living in. Obey your parents. They do know more than you. And I know your parents, kids. They love you. They want the best for you. And as you start thinking you're smarter than them, you're not, not yet. The Lord's growing you up. Maybe you will be. But obey your parents. Until the moment you make your own household, you are under their headship, you're under their authority. Obey your parents. Next, that's for the kids. Obey your parents too. For everyone in the room, honor your father and mother. 
think about the age group that most of us are in. In the coming years, we're about to have a real chance to display to the world what it looks like to care for our aging parents, to honor our father and mother for their whole lives. I have no grandparents still living, and I got to see my parents and their siblings honor their moms and dads, caring for them all the way through. When I think about it now, I really do appreciate having seen it to have it modeled for me. Some of you are already doing it. Some of you are already honoring your father and mother, and I want you to be affirmed in that. You're honoring your parents by caring for them. So students, young folks, yeah, you continue to honor your parents by obeying them, but all the rest of us as we grow older, we can be very different than the world as they sometimes forget their parents. They farm out the care for their parents. Instead, we can engage with their and their aging, what I hope is still decades and decades to come. You can also honor your parents by still including them. Some of you need to be cautious about that. You have unbelieving parents. You have some backward-thinking parents about things, and so you need to measure everything they advise you through the scriptures. Man, some of us have awesome parents. You can still include them. So children, obey your parents. Up until the moment you get, out of, get into your own household, for all of us, honor your father and mother. That doesn't stop when you're an adult. And the third one here was for parents. It said fathers, but it's fathers and mothers. Don't provoke your kids. Instead, it said, bring them up in discipline and instruction. Let's look at all three parents. Don't provoke them. Bring them up in discipline and bring them up in instruction. Number one, don't provoke them. I never experienced this, but I saw it. I saw some moms who would manipulate emotional reactions out of their daughters. I saw some dads who would bully or try to embarrass their kids in front of others. And you know, if you're an adult in here and you were parented that way, you know why that happened? It's probably because they were parented that way. Those who were poorly parented, poorly parent. And if you were poorly parented, it's time for you to break that cycle. If you were to provoked to anger by your parents, it's time for you to start something new for your kids. Don't do the things, insult them, bully them, embarrass them, manipulate them to bring anger out in them. John Piper theorizes here that Paul chose anger as the thing not to provoke them to. Because there's a lot of things you could say here. Like, don't provoke them to rebellion. Don't provoke them to something else. He said anger. Piper's theory is because anger is the most natural emotion when authority is badly used. When you see the government using their authority improperly, it brings up anger. When you see your boss using their authority improperly, it brings up anger. When you see those in charge using their authority improperly, anger is the emotion. And you're the authority in your household. That's yours. That's your kingdom. Use it wisely. Not to provoke them to anger. Key word here, don't provoke them to avoidable anger. Some of you will do something like you have a disciplined style of taking something away from your kid that they like. And they're angry about it. All right, that was the cost of doing business. You were doing your job, and now they're angry. That was unavoidable anger. But can I ask you today, parents, ask yourself that question. Am I provoking them to anger? Am I trying to embarrass them in front of their, their peers? Am I doing anything that brings out anger needlessly in my kids? That's one. Don't provoke them. Number two, 
bring them up in discipline and instruction. This is both proactive and responsive. Those words are important. Proactive and responsive to bring them up in discipline and instruction. So, for example, to bring them up in instruction is to teach them the Bible. Teach them the disciplines that your household is a household that reads the Bible. That your household is a household that prays. That your household is a household that is generous. That your household is a household that monitors, is careful about what comes across screens. Teach them. I can tell you this, and I'll say it again in a minute. They will not learn it on their own. Parenting is not passive. If you do it passively, there's plenty of worldly forces that want to disciple your kids. You cannot make it passive. You have to be hands-on instructing. The spiritual disciplines, but also the, the things of Proverbs. You go to the book of Proverbs, you see a lot of things to instruct your kids in. In kindness, in honesty, in being around the right people. And how to figure out who the wrong influences are. And to the value of being a part of a local church. Self-control. Planning ahead. Holding your tongue. Being a good friend. These are all things proactive that if you will instruct your kid, here's something I know you won't have to do as much. You won't have to do the discipline part as much. If you are proactive, instructing your kid in the things of the Lord, then you will have to do fewer things that are responsive. So... I said bring them up in discipline and instruction. So that's proactive. The other one is responsive. Listen to that word. Not reactive. Some of you have a temper. And a thing can happen that causes you to react, not respond. When a doctor hits that part of your knee that makes your knee come up and they're checking your reflexes, that's a reflex. That's a, that's a reaction. We don't do that. We are the people that respond. We take our time. We bring things in. We mark everything by the scriptures. And when we see something in our kids that does need to be corrected, and that's going to happen a lot, we are not a people that are reactive. We are responsive. And then we don't let discipline go by the wayside. I know discipline's hard for a lot of you. I know it would be hard for me if I were a parent. But parenting is hard, and it's worth it. Discipline will look different for every kid. It's... I know for me, it was just a lot of verbal correction. Some of us have that personality where we just want our parents to be happy with us. And so verbal works. That'll happen for a lot of your kids. Some of you will do discipline by taking away things that they love and so that they feel the pain of not having what they want. Sometimes, for some of you, the discipline will be corporal in nature. It will be physical in nature. I am not giving you my opinion on that. That is the Bible one of the options given to parents in Proverbs and both just the model of punishments throughout the, throughout the law that God even gave Israel, corporal punishments are not by nature unbiblical. It's one of the options. Maybe some of you run to that option too quickly. That Some of you might have grown up in a house that that was option one. It was also options only one. But again, man, you can break that cycle. You don't have to be the family that only has one punishment, only one discipline. You can stop. I'm trying to split that line there, and I'm trying to split it biblically, telling you that corporal punishments are biblical, but they're not the only biblical thing. There are other ways and other motivations. I know, just specifically for me, I think a lot of us would say, we never needed it. 
that was not would not, would not respond well to it at all. Um, there are other there are other options. Hey, it's part of what community's for, guys. We can talk about it with each other. We can learn from one another. We have some older parents here, no offense, that have been through it already. Maybe you could ask some questions. And don't assume that the way your parents did it was the right way. So, parents, don't provoke them. Don't make them, don't make them needlessly angry. Instruct them. Teach them what to do. And then when they do the wrong things, discipline them. So, children, obey your parents. Everybody, honor your father and mother for all the days of their life, however you can. I know I want to be careful with that. Some of you have very strained or no relationship with your parents. And so there's sometimes there are boundaries that gotta got to be set up. I totally recognize that, understand it. We can talk through those things. But honor your father and mother all the days of your life, and parents, don't provoke them, train them up, and just discipline them. So that's how, number one, the story, the Bible, the scriptures can be how we think about kids. I have one other thought on this. I always want to have a mind at Beachwood that we are thinking distinctly than the world around us. That a lot of the things in our Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds should strike us as alien because we're not from here. Here's two, two errors I have seen in the culture regarding children. In part, it's because now for almost 15 years I've been working with college students or really high school seniors, high school juniors. So I've seen now literally probably thousands of kids come through I've seen some things the culture does with children. Number one error I want us to be careful for. Sometimes our culture overvalues children. You've seen it. Some kids run their household. They are the centerpiece of everything in their house. The, the family budget is organized around whether this kid's going to play on his travel team, get their dancing lessons because they're going to be a famous singer one day or be in this theater production. They organize the budget around their kids' lessons. They organize their calendar around baseball tournaments and soccer tournaments on Sunday and skip out on church, thinking that's not going to have a problem. And when their kid goes off the rails at 18, they want to come back and ask if they can get some help. Sometimes are, are we overvalue kids by letting them dominate everything. You know what that does to a kid? They show up to college, they show up to their first job, and they find out very rudely, apparently, the world doesn't revolve around them that no one else is going to consider them first and foremost like you did for 18 years. This does not instruct them well. If you are that parent parent that makes your kid thinks the world revolves around them, you are setting them up for failure. That's something that the world told you to do, but don't. Don't let them be the center of everything for lots of reasons. One, if you do this correctly, one day they're going to go away. They're going to move out. They're going to have their own lives. And you're going to have to look back at your spouse and go, oh yeah, you. Like, we've been focusing on the kids for 18, 20 years. You have to be you, even after the kids move out. So, our culture sometimes overvalues children. Be careful, careful for that. Number two, but sometimes our culture undervalues children. We know that there are forgotten and neglected kids. Keep your eyes open to it as you're working in your schools. As we had before COVID was, I guess that's shut us, shut us down, things like those uh, good news clubs. And you can see kids who are neglected, that aren't getting the attention they need. You can be active in this. Some of you are. Some of you foster kids. Some of you will adopt. Man, there's all kinds of mentoring, volunteering opportunities, all kinds of organizations that need you so that kids can have some attention, that kids can be loved, that kids can be mentored and brought up, instructed. We sometimes undervalue kids in that we, they're out there and they need us. 
So can I challenge you on that? Ask the, ask the Lord even today, is, something I, is, there, is there some hours I could rearrange in my schedule that I could mentor, I could volunteer? Is there some space in our budget that we could be a foster family, that we could adopt? And I would be a coward if I did not mention this. Of course, our culture undervalues kids and that we will end their life in the womb with regularity. We can pray for the end of that. We can work towards the end of that. So parents, be careful. Don't overvalue your kids, but also don't undervalue children. It is, for some, it is to such. These kids are a picture of how we receive the kingdom of God. So let's find that biblical middle. So number one, this text, the scriptures, and how we think about kids. Number two, this is actually the more important point of the passage, is how we think about the kingdom of God and ourselves. Number two, how we think about the kingdom of God and ourselves. This passage calls on us to evaluate our relationship to the kingdom because we're called to come as children. I already mentioned it's not in the righteousness or innocence of children because you know they are bundles of joy, but they are also sometimes monsters. We are not called to come in the innocence of kids. We're being called into the kingdom to come as weak and helpless and unimportant. If we have anything in us today, if you have anything in us and you today that says you are getting into the kingdom because of your moral strength, because of your contributions to the church or your prominence, or maybe you just grew up in a Christian family and you think any of that is coming to the kingdom, you will miss the kingdom of God. We cannot receive the kingdom on our own merits. Jesus said here, it is not achieved, it is received. It is not earned, it's a gift. And for some of us who think we've done okay in life, that's very humbling. Put your head down and humbled that even though I thought I, thought I did a good job, it wasn't good enough, and it's humbling. And then there's Jesus to just take you by the chin, put your head up, say, but yeah, you're, still gonna, you're in. You're just in through me. Of course you didn't do it, but I never thought you could. It was always going to be me. There's a hymn. Uh, a lot of Presbyterians sing. We might bring it in here one day. The last verse is this. Lay your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him and Him alone, gloriously complete. That first one hits me. Lay your deadly doing down. A lot of us are just doing and doing and doing and doing. And we've been doing for 35 years for me. Thinking that is some kind of... I'm going to impress the God of the universe with all my doing. That's very deadly doing. So just lay it down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stop trying to earn it. Stand in Him alone. Gloriously complete. A lot of us think we're wearing our, our, our suits and ties and our prom dresses and that's how incredibly we look with our good works before God and he looks down and he just sees us in rags and he just says take, take those off here's, the, here's my righteous robe just come as a child with nothing to offer arms stretched up and just receive the blessing and the grace and the kingdom of God stop trying to earn it and then in that in that gift of having now had the kingdom go live by the kingdom's values not trying to live the kingdom's value so they'll let you in. You're in! Now match the culture you've adopted. You've adopted the kingdom of God and therefore go live those morals and standards. So this text can get us to think about how we think about kids, how we think about ourselves and the kingdom in that we do not achieve it, we receive it. And then finally, this text calls us to think through how we think about Jesus. The challenge of this book again is, who is this Jesus? What's he like? 
Now that you know he's king, what are you going to do with it? And as we say, well, we think he is king. We think he is the Messiah. Well, then we might ask the question, what's he looking for? What's he looking for as a person to be in his kingdom? And through these passages, we see he's looking for servants. and He's looking for those who take their sin seriously and don't want to just have their own rank and their own name and renown. He wants to, the kingdom to go out and be for anyone who would follow Jesus. But this passage gets us to look at this Jesus. Romans tells us that he was the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. Hebrews tells us that it was the joy set before him, it was because of the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. He's now on the way to the cross in this passage. Somewhere past the cross that he knows is coming, he sees some joy. There's some joy set before him. That's why he's going to endure the cross. Well, what was the joy set before him that he would endure the cross? It was a reconciled people, a reconciled earth, back under the kingdom of God, the world he intended to give us. It was for that joy that you would be in the kingdom, all of us together, he took on the cross. That we're going to recognize here in just a moment as we get around the table of the Lord. Ephesians tells us that as we join the family of God, we're adopted in. He's our firstborn, and we have the kingdom, the family together because of Jesus. Here's the thing I don't want to happen today, that we just look at this passage for the rest of our lives and just have an awe, isn't Jesus sweet moment? Instead, I don't want us to have an awe moment. I want us to have a stand-in-awe moment that this Jesus was on the way to the cross and just stopped to give us the picture that I'm coming to get my kids. And I'll stop for you. And I'll have time for you. I'll stand in awe of him today. That he came to make it possible to lay down our works and lay down our strivings so that we can come and be children and welcome in to our new home, welcome in to our kingdom with our Father forever. So I hope you take this today. I'm going to give us a chance to pray. I'm going to lead you in some prayers as the band comes up to think through some of these. So